You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. podcast that's celebrating the great Gatsby's entrance into the public domain with a sequel where Daisy's teenage kid and Gatsby's ghost work together to solve crimes. And also Nick is there and she tries to get him and Gatsby's ghost together because everyone is now canon bisexual because copyright is dead. I am God and I make the rules now, baby. I'm Megan. I think it's called Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Fred is pretty uh, preppy. He comes off as rich. What, is, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, you're saying that they solve mysteries. Yeah. So Fred is Gatsby. But no, but Gatsby's dead. Oh, it's for, oh Fred, that's a Fred you thing. Dead. That's a you thing. Wait till you see the first episode. Of? I'm RJ. Your Gatsby uh, script treatment you're working on? Maybe. <laughs> ah. Yeah. That's it. 2021 is just the year of everybody's Gatsby projects that they've been keeping under wraps. I mean, did he never pick up on the fact that Shaggy always wears a green shirt? He's the green light. Yeah. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Ah. Symbolism. What's Scooby symbolic for? The failed American dream? <laughs> Basically, the 60s. <laughs> Gatsby's... Written in the is the roar it's the jazz age is the roaring twenties. Yeah, alcohol, weed. Is there a big difference? Yes. I'm RJ. <laughs> yeah, you get the you shake those those podcasting cobwebs off. We've returned. We're back. Ono Licklass has returned to you in the this year of twenty twenty one, which sure is shaping up to be a year so far. I know we took a we took a trip to DC, hung out, saw some sights, got got a couple things at that really big nice gift shop we were in. Got a new podium. <laughs> it really ties the room together. Can we make jokes about that yet? I don't know if we can make jokes about that yet. Some nice gentlemen in like blue outfits seemed upset with us. We didn't know why. But we were white, so they just sent us on our way. So literature, though. <laughs> Scooby. Scooby. Snacks. Scooby, dooby doo. Uh, in fact, we're, we're back in such a big way that we're starting things off with a book that's so big. And and by big, I mean... Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> shut up. By big, I mean it's... Art of not just any deal, but the deal. We're starting things off with a book where it's very on brand for me to tell you to go to hell. The Bible. <laughs> Kinda. Uh, it's so big, and by big I mean so expansive in its influence, and in its impact on not just literature and pop culture, but art, history, language, and the internalization of like how we visualize certain religious iconography that we are absolutely going to have to dedicate two episodes to it. And I know what you might be thinking, like, wow, starting the year off with the two-parter? That also sounds like hell, and you know what? We're already there. 
That was a joke I was originally going to go with. We're in Michigan? <laughs> until, until you just started pissing me off. <laughs> we're we're Hell, in Michigan? Hell, Michigan. Yes, we yeah. are in Hell, Michigan. Are there any other ones? Is that That's the only one I know off the top of my head. I see you Googling. <laughs> my favorite's still Dildo. <laughs> Where's Dildo? I believe Canada. <laughs> but uh, this seems to be the only hell on earth. <laughs> I'm sure there's there's a joke in there somewhere, but it's time for the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. Uh, excuse me. Dildo is a community in Newfoundland. Ah. Oh, and Labrador, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> So there's two dildos. <laughs> Residents of Dildo, Newfoundland are eager to dispel misguided notions about where their town got its name. I don't think anyone is going to think they literally got it from, like, the sex apparatus. Of course not. Um, some other Canadian names blow me down. Well, yeah, my sea shanties are the thing right now. Uh, spread Eagle. Well, that's going to have, like, indigenous connotations, so don't be racist. Balls Creek. <laughs> Balls. Crotch Lake. <laughs> Crotch. Or Climax. All right, now we're just reading a list. Yes, The Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. Of course, his Commedia, famous for helping establish uh, Tuscan as the standardized Italian language for its wildly imaginative visions of the afterlife, and for being a self-inserted story where he puts all the people who have wronged him in hell and is shepherded around by his dreamy poet man-crush, covers purgatory and paradise in addition to hell, aka the Inferno. But that one's where all the fun, sexy stuff is, like climbing up three-headed Satan's ginormous dick to escape the final circle of hell into purgatory, but we'll get there. <laughs> for being called a comedy, it doesn't sound very funny. I explained that. Sounding a lot like a Dane Cook set. Wow. You got any more topical jokes back there in 2008 for me? Jeff Foxworthy. God, you're old. But at least I'm smarter than a fifth grader. Yeah, Gen, Gen Z is going to love that. Um, it ain't no Midge Maisel. <laughs> Just stop. Just God. You know, every every break we take, we come back to podcasting a little bit worse. Um, also, so, I mean, the, the poem, because technically it is a poem, is 14,233 lines, so people usually just stick with the Inferno because they're weak. Which begs the question, at what point do we stop calling a poem a, like a fucking poem? Because, like, where is this? This is 650 pages. For our listeners at home, I'm shaking a book. Isn't the Iliad and the Odyssey a poem? Yeah. Uh, that's longer. I'm I know. Well, sure. that's what I'm saying. So it's like, at what point is this like a, no longer a useful demarcation? <laughs> this is ASMR. I don't think poem has anything to do with length, Meg. Poems come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> it's not how big it is. It's the effect it has ah. and what the author does with it. I'm just saying, being like, yeah, I'm assigning you guys a poem to read carries certain expectations, you know? That's because you had poor teachers to explain what a poem is. Probably. Anyway, 
As fun as it is to joke about the Divine Comedy being self-insert Mary Sue Catholic fanfiction, and trust me, we will, there's absolutely no denying the fucking indelible imprint the poem, book, whatever the fuck, has left on the world. It is considered the greatest work of Italian literature and one of the greatest works of world literature, you know, just in general. It's a fucking... It's no Sopranos. <laughs> I mean, technically, that's that's American. And hey, Vinny, you got the gabagool? I got the gabagool. Also, this, this Sopranos isn't literature. So, I mean, like... You, you can... Know, uh, no, we, we've had that episode. Uh, about what's text... Yeah, you can read it. I guess. James Gandolfini read the script to me. I suppose, it's just I a suppose book on tape. he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, either way, it's a fucking wild concept that a dude sat down and was like, I'm going to write a giant poem that's going to encompass, or that's going to encompass... Encompass? F- fuck me. Encompass? Encompass. <laughs> like I said, we come back to podcasting a little worse every time. It's going to encompass theology, philosophy, mysticism, science, heaven, hell, the earth, and all things. But also, it's going to be a hugely petty fuck you to the bastards that wronged me, and significantly about me learning to be a cool guy and impress the poet Virgil, who is my friend in this fiction, so that I may go to paradise where the hot girl I'm still in love with is waiting for me. She's also an immaculate angel. Fuck you, I'm Dante Alighieri. The Tuscan dialect is now standard Italian. It's a lot. And now you can get Tuscan breadsticks at the local Olive Garden. <laughs> this is because of the divine comedy. Yeah. This is its direct influence. Tuscany's hot. If you're not Christian, or maybe even if you are and you're just not particularly religious, it is highly likely that your visual reference for Western Christian hell that came from like media and entertainment are influenced by the divine comedy if not directly like signs at the entrance claiming abandoned hope all ye who enter here or hell being separated into circles or rings uh, with specific kinds of tortures that we'll get into then indirectly by way of seven centuries worth of artists that were inspired by him to make religious art of people thriving around in hell looking very upset about it so rj so you have to read any of the Divine Comedy? No. Nope. nope, never once. Nah, how about you? Yes. Alright. <laughs> why on earth would I own the fucking portable Dante by choice? Because <laughs> I haven't seen a cover hotter than that. <laughs> hotter than this this man looking very tenderly at this book. Yeah. With that, with that weird fucking hat on that they always got him with. He looks like, um... Scrooge. No. Oh, because I think he looks like Scrooge with that hat. It looks like the nightcap to me. No, he looks like one of the engineers in Prometheus. What? Where on earth are you getting? That looks like a normal human man. Now, look at those eyes and that mouth. He got no teeth. Barely see any eye. He's squinting and he has no teeth because his mouth is closed. What the fuck are you on about? (laughs) Right there. Yeah, no. Okay, yeah. No, you are, getting, you are getting it. And he's ripped as shit. Dante Alighieri ripped as fuck. Yeah. Just a jack. He's shredded. If he, was, if he was jacked as fuck, then they wouldn't have been able to keep him out of Florence. I read in a class in college appropriately titled Comedy and the Devil, which I think I may have mentioned before. It was the one topic. The devil went down to Georgia. Devil had a laugh. He was looking for a class to teach. Uh, (laughs) It was the one uh, top with a professor I know I must have mentioned before, who was the 60 year old bodybuilder who married one of his old students. 
Oh, he shredded <laughs> like your, one of those engineers. Yeah, he was shredded like Dante Alighieri. And he would yell at us for not liking literature enough. And he told us he read it in Italy when he was living there with the circus. And that that's the best circumstances to read it. And then he read a few lines of the original Italian to the class, which was not particularly useful since none of us fucking spoke Italian, but he liked to show off, which is why he always wore very tight black t-shirts. Spaghetti, fettuccine, pizza. Yep. He did not appreciate... I'm not sure. Am I punching up or punching down? With Italians, I feel like we're sort of punching directly across. I mean, they're short people, so I guess you're still punched down. Is that a stereotype? Short, uh, short Italians a stereotype? I've never uh, heard that. Uh, he also did not uh, appreciate... I was going to look, oh. but you do you. All right. He also did not appreciate me and my friend's assessment that Dante wanted to bone Virgil, but also I was 19 and didn't really know how to argue it in the annoying grad school way that I can now. Or I argue it in like a literary way where you have to at least pretend to take it seriously. So there's a whole fuckload to talk about just with like Dante Alighieri, the actual historical man, without getting into Dante the character. And if we're going to get through all three sections of this bitch of a commedia, we figured uh, we'd confine this episode just to the man himself and the actual context behind the comedy. So we split up the tasks a bit differently this time. RJ will be taking you through his life and times per usual, and I'll tell you about when he did, you know, the when he did the thing. When he done wrote the thing. Um, are you looking up if Italians are short? You know, I learned something here. Oh, God. They are, on average, the same height as the non-Hispanic white American man. Five, nine and a half. So this is a stereotype you invented in your head just now. Well, when I imagine Italian, I imagine them all short and fat, like in The Godfather. Who's short and fat in The Godfather? I don't know. <laughs> You're just making shit up. You just sat here and invented a stereotype. <laughs> You're inventing racism in real time. Is it, is it Mario? Were you thinking of Mario? <laughs> he is pretty short and stout compared to his brother, Ouija. And, and... and were you thinking is wario even italian well they're all from the same place no they're not no wario and waluigi are not related to mario and luigi no thought they were no thought they were cousins i don't think so no (laughs) you thought italians being short was a stereotype because of mario you're what's wrong with america i think and on that note RJ, tell us, how did Dante first transition from the divine to the mortal plane? Durante di Alighiero Degli Alighieri, better known as Dante Alighieri, was born sometime in 1265 and died September 14th, 1321. Birthdays and social security records were too cool for school back then. You know how it is. But they didn't know he died on September 14th specifically. Yeah. Huh. In some sources. Some sources just said 1321, but then I did get a date in a different source, so I went with the date. <laughs> okay. They seem pretty sure. Anyway, the OG Owie G was born in Florence. <laughs> God damn it. What? <laughs> no, no. Continue. He was born in Florence, Republic of Florence, in what is now Italy, as you may have guessed. 
1265 date is assumed to be his birth year or close enough based upon the autobiographical bits contained within the Divine Comedy. You know, leaving little hints for all your fans in the future so they could get to know the real life Ali G. Specifically, he said when he wrote the Divine Comedy, it was halfway through his life when life was considered to be 70 years old, according to scholars. So 35 being half that, and he wrote it eh, starting in around 1300, some simple subtraction, boom, 1265. I mean, it's assumed he, wrote, he started writing it, at, I think it was 1308. Yeah, but they did this math and they said 1300 minus 35, 1265. Sure, why not? But yeah, it is assumed that he's 35 in the, in the story because he's having a, a good old midlife crisis. Well, I guess, okay, so not when he <clears throat> wrote it. It's when he started talking about the action in the story that it was halfway through his life. Ah, gotcha. I'm actually surprised the assumption was 70 years equal to normal life back then. That means we've added, what, only six years to the average expected life of a man in the last 600 years? That doesn't seem like a good return on investment for me. No, not really. If you want more specific clues as to who this Ali G really was, well, he may have been a Gemini. As he wrote, quote, As I revolved with the eternal twins, I saw revealed from hills to river outlets the threshing floor that makes us so ferocious. That would peg him as being born in the May 11th to June 11th range of 1265. For all you people who just love astrology. Oh my god, he's like such a Gemini. I don't know what that would mean, <laughs> but I bet whatever qualities or traits Geminis have that he's like such a Gemini. You know the movie Gemini Man? It's actually based on him. Oh my God. Fuck you. <laughs> it's a post credit scene that pulls it all together. Yep, I bet. Owie claimed that he was descended from the ancient Romans, but this being the time before birthdays and Ancestry.com, the most distant relative you can name was alive like a hundred years before him, which isn't exactly the time of ancient Rome. Owie's father was Awagiro de Bellicone, who was in his mid-fifties when Owie was born. His mother was Bella Abadi, who died when Owie was just around 10 years old. Daddy Dante was quick to get with Lapa de Shersimo, oh and man. What, let me, what? Shersimo. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Lapa di Shersimo. But there's another oh, one. That's oh. threw me out. I gotta Lapa be ready. Lapa di It is unclear whether Daddy G really married her since widowers were not exactly free just to shack up with someone else, but she definitely bore him two more children, Francesco and Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> Danya. 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 I'm probably not pronounced that way, but that's what I'm sticking with. Probably not, but... Danya. Danya. <laughs> Owie's half-brother and half-sister. Not much is known about Dante's education. It's assumed he studied at home or in a chapter school attached to a church or monastery in Florence, which were the two main options for most children at the time. We do know that he studied Tuscan poetry, and in particular, he admired the compositions of the Bolognese poet, Guido... Mm. <laughs> you can do it, I believe. Well, I mean, his name's Guido. I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, just sitting here. That's his name. Guido Gonzazelli, who he referenced to as it's, a kind of... Guinezelli. I don't think it's Gonzanelli. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Guido Guinezelli. 
who we reference to as a kind of literary father to him. Guido, you like a literary father too much. <laughs> Guido, you write the poetry I wish mama used to make. This is the year we get canceled by Italians. Owie claims that when he was nine, he met Beatrice Portinari for the first time. She was nine at the time also, and Owie claimed to have fallen in love with her, quote, at first sight, without even talking to her. This is some Romeo and Juliet kind of stuff right here. Except that in this case, Romeo was also a child, <laughs> not just Juliet. He would write about Beatrice many times throughout his life, but the relationship was never meant to be. Can nine-year-olds even fall in love? According to him, yes. As when Owie was 12, he was promised... In marriage to Gemma Di Minetto Donati. So here he was, a poor nine-year-old, infatuated with this girl he's never spoken to, merely only seen, but he knows it's all the first sight. And then at 12, they say, hey, you know, you've been looking at that neighbor girl. Oh, you're going to get married to this one instead. Life comes at you fast. Eesh. Contracting marriages at this early age was actually the norm. There was a formal ceremony. That sucks. And there was a formal ceremony, including contracts signed before a notary. Truly beloved, we gather here today to contractually obligate this 12-year-old to marry <laughs> this 12-year-old once they're old enough to understand that concept. That sucks so much. Shall we say in two years when they're both, eh, 14? Medieval times, hey, baby. Dante claimed to have seen Beatrice again frequently after he turned 18, exchanging greetings with her in the streets of Florence. Oh, so he'd said words to her at this point. Though he never knew her well, he remained deeply infatuated and in love with her. Years after his marriage to Gemma, he claims to have met Beatrice again. He wrote several sonnets to Beatrice, but never mentioned Gemma in any of his poems. <laughs> the perfect woman. One I have exchanged vague pleasantries with. As for his relationship with Beatrice, well, she died when both of them were 25. Historians say that the relationship between Owie and Beatrice serves as an example to Owie and us of what is considered courtly love. You know, the kind of chaste love a knight may have for a maiden and does her bidding and saves the day. That kind of stuff. This is how Owie saw his relationship with Beatrice and how others saw it as well. I mean, sure, I guess, but uh... They met when they were nine. Well, court, uh, courtly love is like unburdened with any of the baggage of like an actual tangible romance. <laughs> uh, historians say that Owie's love for Beatrice would be his reason for poetry and for living. Woof, my dude. <laughs> As well as his political passions. But that is not nearly as sexy, so we won't discuss those right now. In many of Owie's poems, Beatrice is depicted as semi-divine, constantly watching over him and providing spiritual instruction, sometimes harshly. Again, she's, she's just a convenient blank canvas. When she died, Owie sought refuge in Latin literature while also dedicating himself to philosophical studies at religious schools. It was around this time that Owie met another Guido, Guido Cavalcanti, Lapo Gianni, Cinco de Pistoia, de Pistoia, and Brunetto Latini. Together they became the leaders of the Dolce Stonovo, aka that sweet new style, a term which Ali himself came up with. 
Wait, that's not just something you're making up. No? That fucking rules. Yeah. <laughs> they were the Dolce de Novo. That sweet he, new style. That, yeah, oh, came, that's hot. Yeah, that's right. What did you ever do in life? This guy came up with a sweet new style, bruh. <sighs> During his 20s, Owie fought in the Battle of Campodino on the side of pro-papal and... Well, 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 wait, before... before. Uh, what what the fuck was the sweet new style? You oh. you can't just throw that out there and not tell me what it is. <laughs> it was like their style of writing. That they you Tuscany Tuscan. Oh, oh, I thought Tus- this is okay. what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, well yeah. They, they, they used the vernacular of the people. Ah, because the literature up at that point had been in Latin. Yes, which people don't talk. No. And so the sweet new style was, hey guys. Okay, so it was the language. We should write like we talk. The lang- the language of the streets. Yeah, I mean that's what he's known for. That's the big deal about. Well, yes, yeah. I didn't know that it was referred to as that sweet new style. Yes, Dolce Stil Novo. So during his late adolescence and early twenties, Alwi fought in the Battle of Campaldino on the side of pro-papal and pro-Holy Roman Empire forces from Florence and Naples against forces from Arezzo. Given that he was fighting on the side of the Holy Roman Empire, as well as papal forces, he was fighting on the side that had more forces, better equipment, and, well, they won easily. This brought about change in Florence, basically a new constitution, and if you wanted to be part of the pro-papal, pro-Holy Roman Empire of Life in Florence, you had to enroll in one of the city's commercial or, or artisan guilds. Basically, you needed to be a card-carrying member of the system. Otherwise, you were on the outs. Dante entered the Physicians and Apothecaries Guild. He brought government to the people. He was he was one of, he was part of the man. The thing is, within the party <laughs> that was pro-papal and pro-Holy Roman Empire, like in any group, there were some people who were more pro-papal and some who were more pro-Holy Roman Empire. I like to think of this as akin to fans arguing over who's the best and cutest Backstreet Boy. And obviously, <laughs> yeah. it's Howie. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's very similar. Um, <laughs> and it's Howie. Wow, that's a, that's a dark horse of a choice. Yeah, I just took the name. I didn't know. <laughs> I don't think Howie was anybody's choice back in the day. Well, I'm picking Howie. Also, you want to be careful. I don't think he's one of them. I think a couple of the Backstreet Boys ended up on Parlor. I, I, I did because I looked up a list of who was, <laughs> who, was the, who was the best Backstreet Boy. And they talked about like their careers after Backstreet Boys. Yeah. And a couple of them have like solo albums like Why America is Great or I Love Christ. <laughs> That one wasn't Howie. Ah, uh, I know AJ's a safe one. I know AJ grew, grew up to be a, a good one. He's not one of the parlor Backstreet Boys. <laughs> now, to make things easier in Florence, the two sides took polar opposite colors to represent themselves. The side that was the more Holy Roman Empire were the White Gelfs, and the pro-papacy group was the Black Gelfs. Allie was a White Gelf, a White G. This is going to get real problematic real fast if you keep doing that. It's like Lord of the Rings, right? There's the white side, the black side. Always white and black. I don't think that was a Lord of the Rings thing. Uh, oh, yeah. There was the gray Gandalf and white Gandalf and black Gandalf. There was not a black Gandalf. Oh, yeah, there was. <laughs> he was Gandalf. I've I run enough fanfic, Meg. BBC Gandalf. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Gandalf of BBC. <laughs> Dear internet, I want to play 
as Twink Gollum and you are Gandalf, but BBC. <laughs> yeah, people are going to have to Google listening Yeah, who don't know what that means. Uh, book back. Big <laughs> black cock. Big black cock Gandalf thing. That, yep. I'm going to sip my water and try not to think about Twink Gollum and Big Black Cock Gandalf. <laughs> As you compare some kind of weird fetish porn Lord of the Rings to fucking religious disputes in medieval Florence. I don't know if you've actually read Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's half of it, Meg. Hey, everybody. So it's a new year. Same Megan. Very clearly still the same Ono Lit class. And the same Cooper. It's the same Cooper. I don't know how well you can the Michael pick up that she's just a purring fool. She's purring like crazy. She was beeping like crazy a minute ago. But of course, you know, she never beeps when I actually want her to beep and be cute. She looks so cute right now. She's just sitting here with her tongue hanging out. She's just the poster child for no thoughts, head empty, which, I mean, I, I sympathize with right now. We're both vibing. We're, we're twin, we're twin spirits right now. God, I hope the mic picked up RJ just laughing at the perfect moment from another room. <laughs> I don't know if that came through or not. Ow. Okay, Cooper very much took offense to me mocking her sweet tiny brain. I'm sorry, Cooper. I love you. Um, hey y'all, welcome to another year of sweet, sweet literary nonsense. Uh, thank you for joining us. And if you're brand new, thank you for checking us out. Yup, this is it. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Key is laughing his ass off on the other side of the apartment, but I can hear it from here. I don't know if it's getting picked up. It's not showing up on the waveform, but sometimes even when it doesn't show up on the waveform, you can just hear like the, the faintest whisper. And I mean, obviously I can noise gate it out, but if it's funny, I'm not going to. Before we continue on with our Alighieri uh, related antics, just want to take a moment to remind everybody that this episode, like all our episodes, is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing divine, some would say, patrons, including our newest ones, Nashia Horn and Elaine Willibanks. Thank you, Nashia and Elaine. You guys and all of our other patrons help to keep this show going and pay for, you know, stuff like hosting and the website and just, you know, make it easier to help us keep bringing the thing to you. We love all of our listeners equally, but we love our patrons the most. If you guys would like to help support the show on Patreon and become some of our favorite listeners, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash onolitclass and get access to all kinds of bonus content, swag, stickers, posters, t-shirts, um, the ability to vote on episodes that we do next, or just straight up com commission us, I guess, essentially. Throw money at us and be like, hey, do this. And then we have to be like, yeah, all right, 
I guess we have to now. Dance for me, and then 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 we dance. We we go. <laughs> Those are dancing sounds. Um, <laughs> that's it. Patreon.com/slash. Oh no, lit class. I'm very tired. Per the usual. Um, I'm gonna go see what is making RJ laugh so hard that he sounds like he is in mortal danger. Um, and I'll let you guys get back to the episode. All right, so Owie was a white Gelf, a white G, because the white Gs believed in freedom for Florence and believed in, in the idea of self-determinism in the empire under the emperor. Conversely, the black Gs believed the Pope should rule Florence akin to a king, and there shan't be self-determinism in this way. So it boiled down to the worst game of choose your leader, emperor or Pope. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty shitty game of choose your own adventure. <laughs> Initially, after the war, the white gelfs were in power, which worked out well for Ali. They did not treat the black gelfs all that nicely, as they were generally stripped of power and were not afforded much of a say in many matters. As history has taught us, this tends not to make problems go away. What? In 1298, Pope... <laughs> I want to call him Bonerface. But Pope Boniface <laughs> the Eighth. Pope Boniface. Well, you see, there was a, a Mario player who was Bonifacio. Yeah. And he was not very good, and so people called him Bonerface. Sports fans, so eloquent. Um, but so in 1298, Pope Boniface VIII sent his main man, Cardinal de Aquasparta, to resolve the political issues in a way that would favor the Pope. You know, change some minds. While in Florence, the Cardinal was nearly killed by an arrow. <laughs> this pissed off the Black Gelfs, saying the White Gelfs were trying to kill one of them with no provocation. The Pope, in response to his cardinal almost catching one, excommunicated the entire city of Florence. <laughs> Boom. Wow. Basically, the Pope was like, yo, guys, Florence is canceled as all shit. Which, not surprisingly, had a heavy commercial consequence on the city. You think cancel culture is bad now, guys? He fucking just wrote off a whole city. Yeah, this did not exactly help quell the unrest between the opposing factions in Florence. The Pope then sent a military expedition to the city under French and papal rule. The white Gelfs responded by sending ambassadors to Rome to meet with the Pope. Aoi was one of the ambassadors. Aoi was considered a city judge, which is why he was sent on such an important mission. The goal of the mission was to try to convince the Pope that the white Gelfs were in charge and that he should not have his forces take over Florence. You know, maybe they could find some sort of middle ground. That said, the mission failed spectacularly. Almost as soon as Aoi left for Rome, the Black Gelfs took over, kicked the White Gelfs out of Florence, and as for Aoi himself, he was tried in Florentine court in abstentia, as in not physically being there, for crimes against the Pope and his great authority. The empty chair representing Aoi is found guilty and is sentenced to death. Functionally, this means Aoi is exiled and he cannot return to Florence after he leaves Rome. The thing is, Aoi did not know any of this was going on. You see, when he arrived in Rome with his crew to discuss things with the Pope and to smooth things over, Aoi's posse was sent away, but the Pope requested that Aoi hang around. While Aoi did not want the Pope to be the ruler of Florence, the dude was still the Pope. So he listened. In reality, the Pope was just keeping Aoi out of the loop and under his control, so by the time all the plot was carried out, Aoi was sentenced, considered an absconder for being away so long, and as the kids say, the rest is history. Check and mate, good sir. 
While the white Gelfs would try to retake power, it never happened, and Aoi would spend the rest of his life in exile. His exile began in 1302 when he was 37. He bounced around Europe trying to get help for himself and his people. France, Oxford, other parts of Italy, including a little time in old fair Verona. No word if he met any horny teens or a friar that was hungry for teen drama and suicide. After these initial attempts to get Florence back under friendlier control, Alvi settled down and there were no signs he ever left Italy again. Since he no longer worried about politics or the complications of conducting some sort of coup, Alvi had plenty of time to just chill and write and read. During this time, his command of philosophy and his literary interest deepened. Critics say that his prose during this time period were among the best he wrote. Nothing like some trauma to get those artistic hamster wheels going. That'll do it every time. It's not clear exactly when Owie began to construct what would become the Divine Comedy, but it is considered to have begun to kick around in some written form in 1308, about six years into exile when he was 43. In 1310, the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VII of Luxembourg, marched into Italy at the head of 5,000 troops. They defeated the Black Gelfs and freed Florence, but at this point, Ali had run afoul of the White Gelfs as well, and he had no political power left, so he had no way of returning. What did he do to piss them off? Yeah, he just was pissing everybody off. Yeah. He just became a kook. <laughs> Unlikable. Talk about hell and shit. Yeah. In 1315, Florence was forced by the military controlling the town to grant an amnesty to those in exile, including Ali. But to get the amnesty, Florence required public penance in addition to a heavy fine. Ali refused preferring to remain in exile. Later, Aoi's death sentence was commuted to house arrest on the condition that he just go to Florence to swear he would never enter the town again. Wait, go to Florence and say, but I'm not, I won't, like, what? Like, I, won't put, I won't put my foot in? Yeah. <laughs> he refused to do that, and so his death sentence was upheld, and additionally now his death sentence extended to his sons. Oh, no. Yeah, you gotta respect a guy who never backs down. Despite all this... Aoi still held out hope throughout his life that he would be invited back to Florence on honorable terms. <laughs> Aoi lived out his remaining years in northeastern Italy in the city of Revena after being invited to stay there by its prince. Aoi died on September 14, 1321, aged 56. During a trip to Venice, he contracted malaria. He was buried in Revena at the church of San Pier Maggio, where a tomb was erected for him over 100 years later. His grave has an inscription that reads in Italian, Florence, mother of little love. Accurate. As if dying was not enough, a cardinal attempted to get the remains out of Revna so Aoi's bones could be burned at the stake. Oh my god. Others stepped in to stop this from happening. Never let a vengeance die. Jeez. When was that? Like immediately after? No, or? it was actually some time after. <laughs> It was like a decade or two after. Okay, because I'm curious, because I've got a, a timeline of when something else happened that doesn't fit with <laughs> I'm just, just curious how soon after. <laughs> Florence has come to regret its treatment of Aoi and actually tried to make amends. Florence eventually came to regret Aoi's exile. It's a bad look and it's not aged well. In June 2008, <laughs> nearly seven <laughs> centuries after his death, the city council of Florence passed a motion rescinding Aoi's sentence. You know, comparatively, um, oh shit. Oh, well, which one were you thinking of? Alan Turing. Ah, yeah, that's that, that one. 
<laughs> that fucking flu, man. Britain, yeah, they made events pretty quickly. <laughs> but even before officially rescinding his sentence, the city made repeated requests for the return of his remains. Not to burn them, but to bury them. How do, you, how do you know we're not, you're not? How do we know you're not just gonna fucking burn them? The custodians of the body in Revena refused, and at one point they went so far as to conceal the bones in a false wall of the monastery. <laughs> Even though Florence did not get the remains, they decided the hell with it, and they just built a tomb for him in Florence in 1829 in the Basilica of Saint Croce. That tomb has forever been empty. <laughs> you know, they thought if you build it, maybe the remains will come. <laughs> I like Revna just being like, no, fuck you. <laughs> These are our bones, bitch. The front of his tomb in Florence reads in Italian, honor the most exalted poet. <laughs> That's rich. Stranger still, in Palazzo Vecchio, which is in Florence, there is a copy of Dante's so-called death mask, which has been on display since 1911. The thing is... It is not a real death mask, as it was carved almost 150 years after he died. In short, while Florence shit all over him in life, they really shit on themselves in his death. In 2009, I think, they tried to do like a, they did like a facial reconstruction of like his remains or whatever. And And it came up. Engineer. (laughs) (laughs) From Prometheus. Well, he doesn't look anything like... What artists and all the people have been going off of that, the the fake death mask, that he doesn't have, like, that big, like, aquiline nose that he's, like, so famous for. And so people were just like, huh. (laughs) Because it's a fake death mask. It was made 150 years after he died. Exactly. So I don't know what exactly it's based off of. But yeah, they they did like a reconstruction off his actual like remains of like technology and just shit. And it's like, oh, we don't look nothing like that thing that was made with no basis. Dante's considered to be a remarkable writer and his works continued to be celebrated generation after generation. Even the Catholic Church couldn't ignore it forever. On April 30th, 1921, in honor of the 600th anniversary of Dante's death, Pope Benedict XV called Ali one, quote, of the many celebrated geniuses of whom the Catholic faith can boast, and the, quote, pride and glory of humanity. Let's not talk about the time the other Pope really fucked his shit up. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Yeah, well. So... Dante Alighieri began writing the Divina Commedia, or the Divine Comedy. <laughs> I mean, God damn it. I forgot to take this out of my notes. I'm making you the Commedia like a mama used to. There you go. It's gonna be a so divine. <laughs> We're probably not gonna be allowed to do this anymore soon. Um, anyway, he started writing the Ding Dang thing. Fuck me. That's how I can tell I've been spending too much time with Scotty. That's, that's a Scottyism that is creeping into my vocabulary. He started writing it in around 1308, and um, he didn't finish until about 12 years later, partly because he was extremely busy, as you were saying, running around in exile, bouncing from place to place, doing hot girl shit, and uh, was published in 1320, just one year before his death. Well, maybe not published, published, finished, completed, one year before he died. So, I mean, yeah, it took a while, but, you know, he got it done when it counted, I think our listeners can appreciate the importance of getting things in right under the deadline. 
the deadline. The deadline. You didn't even know it was coming, you know? Yeah, or, or maybe he could, he could feel it in his bones. Oh, maybe. Oh, you know, that average life thing, it's coming for you. Well, because you did, apparently it was 70. He was like 20 years under the average. Was he? You said 56. Oh, yeah. What was it he died Came of? up a little short. Malaria. Yeah. Ugh. But, um, yeah, he started writing this at a pretty shit time, you know. I mean, not that it ever really got much better. But, so, you know, there's a reason that it starts with Dante, the character, at basically the lowest point in his life, straying from life's well-lit path. Well, we'll get there in part two. So, you might wonder, as RJ already did, why it's called the Divine Comedy. <laughs> well, originally it was just called the Comedia, or the Comedy, including in its first printed edition all the way, like, way, way later in 1472... Um, although the divine adjective was added in 1360 by a poet named Giovanni Boccaccio, famous for writing The Decameron, a story about a bunch of people who have to quarantine in place because of a plague and tell each other stories to pass the time. And also a bunch of other stuff that Chaucer would later steal, but that's another story for another day. Anyway, Boccaccio was like, this shit divine, and uh, threw that on there, but... The first edition to actually be named uh, Divina Commedia wasn't published until 1555 uh, by one of the first major Italian publishers, Gabriele Giolito di Ferrari, whose name I included because it whips ass. That's a cool name. That is a pretty good name. Gabriele Giolito di Ferrari. Powerful. It is. Carl-like. It is. Well, <laughs> but in answer to the question... As we know, old-time comedy definition wasn't like ha-ha comedy necessarily. I think we've talked about this on the show before, everything with, you know, the two masks, tragedy and the comedy, masks. Tragedy goes high to low, everybody's dead at the end. Comedy goes low to high, everybody's not dead at the end. It's a real bullshit simplified version, but, you know, you ain't gonna go much more low to high than clawing your ass up from literal actual Christian hell to literal actual Christian heaven, so... Comedy it is. These are the two genders, tragedy and comedy. Everything else is fake and a lie. I said genders instead of genres, didn't I? I believe you did. It's close, though. <laughs> Fuck. You know what? I stand by it. I, def I defend that. There you go. We could call them genders. <laughs> sure, why not? Also, comedy was typically written in... You walk into Barnes & Noble and go, where's the gender for me? I'm looking for a specific gender. Can you direct me to the sci-fi gender, please? Uh, comedy was typically written in low everyday language, um, while high, lofty topics were reserved for Latin. And since Dante was writing in the words of the common folk in that, that sweet new style, what was it, the Dolce? Dolce Still Novo. Since he was writing in that Dolce Still Novo, he was like, fuck it, I'll call it a comedy. Despite the fact that, you know, he was writing about some some heady ass shit. So this was kind of a big deal. But the big part of it was that he wanted to reach as big an audience as possible, including laymen and non-clergy folk who weren't running around reciting the Lord's Prayer and shit. So how did the public react to Dante publishing a giant poem book thing? A, a good chunk of which was him pointing to public figures and going, 
and you're in hell, and you're in hell, and you're in super hell, actually. <laughs> you, Pope, you're in hell, dude. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> well, you'll notice those publication dates I mentioned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, in fact, it wasn't until a little over 50 years after the guy died that uh, authorities in Florence were like, okay, fine, we'll admit this might be a little culturally important. That's why I was curious about when he said that the cardinal tried to get his bones to burn them. Yeah. <laughs> because so 50 years later, uh, they let Giovanni Boccaccio uh, sponsor and then become the dean of the Department of the Study of the Divine Comedy. So, like, yeah, if even the city that hated his guts had to give in that much, people had to be pretty into it. Yeah. They had to set up a, 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 a department of the study of the Divine Comedy in Florence <laughs> less than a century after he died. People like the writing. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so people were into it. <laughs> Just a year later, Boccaccio was already giving lectures on the Divine Comedy. In the meantime, Chaucer had started translating and stealing, I mean, adapting, wink, some of Dante's comedy into his own work. And in the immediate centuries following publication, people were riding the Dante train. The, they rena their renaissance went hard for Dante. Uh, but then came the Age of Enlightenment, and everyone went... Ew, this is medieval and gross, and we are having revolutions and lack interest. Until the 19th century romantics, specifically folks like noted hallucinating poet genius and weirdo William Blake rediscovered him and were like, Oh? Visions of hell and heaven and monsters and demons and angels and shit? Fuck yeah, dude! And in 1802, Dante finally got his first full and completed English translation of the Divine Comedy. And then I fell down an absolute rabbit hole of nerd forums debating what the best English translation to read is. And it is a fascinating time suck because people have got opinions and will go like comparing it line by line of like, well, which one is like the most accurate, but which one is the most lyrical and poetic, but which one is the most like readable and will get me through this fucking book. So yeah, if you've got an afternoon to kill, I highly recommend the experience. So, uh, there's no original surviving manuscript, but according to the Italian Dante Society, there's as many as 800 copies from the 14th and 15th centuries still kicking it in various locations around the world. Of the 300 copies that were first printed in 1472, 14 are still around, which I, I don't really have like a context for as to whether that's like a lot or not. Wait, how many? 14 of the of the 300 uh, initially printed in 1472 like we saw the gutenberg bible which was dope yeah and that's only like 20 years older um so the fact that they still have like 14 copies of this seems pretty wild to me like that feels like a lot i don't know if it's a lot or a little <laughs> like I don't... it seems pretty good yeah yeah um, and the pages that they at least have like on display online are like in pretty decent condition like they're readable Okay. So, I don't know. Seems pretty dope. That's cool. Yeah. Anywho, so basically, like, 75% of the most famous Renaissance art is from the Divine Comedy. Don't fact check me. Uh, Rodin sculpted the fucking Gates of Hell from the Inferno. 
Botticelli's most famous set of illustrations were commissioned for a manuscript of the Divine Comedy. Like, is it's fucking everywhere. What else? William Blake, uh, aforementioned famed genius and weirdo, near the end of his life was also commissioned to illustrate the Divine Comedy. And if you're at all familiar with Blake's illustrations, they are some wild shit. If you're not familiar, look it up. Worth a Google. It's, um, in... Fuck, what is it? Red Dragon? Uh, he did, he did that painting. What, who is that? I think it's Ray Fiennes. Eats, I think. <laughs> that sure is a movie. <laughs> anyway, um, he died before he could finish all of them because he was supposed to illustrate like the whole fucking thing, but they're sick as hell. Uh, a different, much more well-liked professor gifted me a book of them as a graduation present and I cherish it very dearly. She'd seen the comics that I'd drawn of Dante and Virgil. She knew the truth. They, they weren't horny comics. They, they were goofy comedy comics. <laughs> Dane Cook, Bonnie? Sure. Yeah! But, yeah, authors have been creaming their jeans for the comedy ever since. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow um, was the first American to translate the comedy into English, Noted racist and anti-Semites Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot were big fans. Uh, old Clive Staples Lewis, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett. These are just a few people. The list goes on. T.S. Eliot has been quoted as saying, Dante and Shakespeare divide the world between them. There is no third. Samuel Beckett has been quoted as saying, All I want to do is sit on my arse and fart and think about Dante. <laughs> Who doesn't? You could tell which one of them was friends with James Joyce. <laughs> I'm gonna leave specific adaptations, uh, aka What Dreams May Come, The Devil May Cry games, Over the Garden Wall, and WrestleMania 36, the Firefly Funhouse match, to name a few, for the next episode. And for now, we'll leave it there. Okay. Deal. <laughs> Deal. I'm RJ. <laughs> and uh, that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. It's a little bit shorter than a typical episode, but if we try to cram this into the same one where we did the entire plot of the Divine Comedy, it would be untenable. So we figured we'd split it up this way. So you've got the, the next one will be just pure sweet plot action. Yeah. yeah. So we, we hope you look forward to that. We hope you enjoyed this. This fun romp into the life and times of, God, I'm going to say it, the OG Alley G. That, that hurt. Um, As we tried to remember how to podcast again. <laughs> if you enjoy, if you like what you heard, thanks. <laughs> And also, subscribe. Uh, leave us a rating or a review. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the white gelfs and the black gelfs. Be like, hey guys, the Pope, the Holy Roman Empire, what's it all about anyway? Check, check out this great podcast instead. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. You can listen to us anywhere, everywhere, all the time at onolitclass.com. And 
the next episode will be on February 4th, which I think is also technically our fourth anniversary. Possibly, but I don't know anymore. Early February? I think it might be our fourth anniversary. We've been doing this for four years. We should probably be better at this. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Canada's got dildos. No, Newfoundland is not No, Newfoundland, Newfoundland is its own thing. Yeah. No, but so Earth hell, has one hell, two dildos. There's a hell is uniquely American. <laughs>